This is CNN Breaking News. Hey, warm welcome to the World Economic Forum here in Davos, Switzerland. I'm Julia Chatterley, and we begin with the latest on the heartbreaking tragedy in Texas. An emotional vigil held for the 19 children and two teachers gunned down in an elementary school in the small town of Uvalde. father, grieving after realizing his daughter died trying to save her classmates. I just want people to know that, that she just died trying to save her classmates. She just wanted to, to save everyone. And new details about how events unfolded. This video shows the 18-year-old gunman entering the school on Tuesday. He was on school grounds for up to an hour before law enforcement shot and killed him. Moments before the attack, he apparently sent a series of chilling text messages to a girl in Germany that he met online. An officer confronted him, but he still managed to get inside the building, dropping a bag full of ammunition before entering. President Biden expected to go to there in the coming days to meet with victims' families. Adrian Brodus has more. For those who've lost little children, pray for them. A community grieving after 19 children and two adults were gunned down at Robb Elementary School Tuesday. This is the scene at a vigil held last night for the victims as the community grapples with this senseless tragedy. The children who witnessed it trying to come to terms with what they saw. One third grader describes the terror. Everybody was scared. We were all panicking because we didn't know what was really happening. And we were all hiding behind a stage in the cafeteria when it happened. This as 21 families grieving the loss of loved ones. <laughs> Ten-year-old Lexi Rubio had just celebrated making the honor roll earlier Tuesday. Her parents, Felix and Kimberly, were so proud and attended the ceremony to celebrate their daughter. They say Lexi was kind, sweet, and appreciated life. Felix Rubio is a Uvalde County Sheriff's deputy. He hopes change will come. All I can hope is that she's just not a number. Hopefully something gets resolved. That's all we ask. Hopefully something gets resolved. I'm a cop. I'm a deputy here in Uvalde County. This is enough. This is enough. No one else needs to go through this. We never needed to go through this, but we are. Jose Flores Jr., also 10 years old, was in the fourth grade and loved baseball and video games. His father tells CNN he was an amazing big brother who, quote, was always full of energy. Fourth grader Uzziah Garcia was 10 years old. His uncle described him as a great kid, full of life, loved anything with wheels and video games. 10-year-old Xavier Lopez has been identified as one of the victims. His grandmother spoke to ABC News. Ten-year-old Tess Marie Mata also lost her life. Her older sister Faith wrote on Twitter, My precious angel, you are loved so deeply. May your wings soar higher than you could ever dream. 
Nevea Bravo was also identified by her family as one of the victims. Her cousin tells the Washington Post that Nevea put a smile on everyone's face. Amory Jo Garza was 10 years old. Her father, Angel Garza, tells CNN she was trying to call 911 to protect her classmates. Garza is a med aide who arrived on the scene to later learn his daughter was one of the deceased. Two of the students in her classroom that she was just trying to call authorities. And I guess he just shot her. How do you look at this girl and shoot her? <laughs> oh, my baby. How do you shoot my baby? Oh. And two teachers were also killed. Fourth grade teachers Eva Morales and Irma Garcia. Garcia was a wife and mother of four. A GoFundMe page set up to raise funds for her funeral expenses and the needs of the family, writes, she sacrificed herself protecting the kids in her classroom. She was a hero. She was loved by many and will truly be missed. And Eva's daughter paid tribute to her mother on social media, writing, Mom, you are a hero. I keep telling myself that this isn't real. I just want to hear your voice. I want to thank you, Mom, for being such an inspiration to me. I will forever be so proud to be your daughter. And here in Davos, world leaders speaking at the World Economic Forum included a poignant message from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressing the tragedy even as his own nation faces its own war. This is terrible to have victims of shooters in peaceful time. So if you ask me about my opinion about the protection of the war, it happens everywhere. It happens in the world. Uh, it happens within seemingly peaceful societies. It's also a conversation that businesses in the United States simply can't escape from as they prioritize the safety of their people. Tesla CEO Elon Musk, a major employer now, of course, in Texas, not shying away from the subject, tweeting, quote, assault rifles should at minimum require a special permit where the recipient is extremely well vetted, in my opinion. Now, here in Davos, I spoke to Microsoft's President Brad Smith, too, and said, in light of what feels like a political vacuum in Washington, D.C. on this matter, when is it business's role to step up and take a stance? Listen in. Well, we look at this, and the first thing we do is we ask ourselves every day, where is it appropriate to use the company's voice to speak out and where not? You know, we all, as leaders, have views. But we don't think it's appropriate to use the company's name just to voice our own views. So we say we look at three things. Does something affect the way our customers use technology, security, privacy? Um, does it affect our employees you know, at work, at home? And third, you know, does it affect our broader business and the needs of our shareholders? We look at something like gun control and we've had a hard time saying, well, it doesn't quite fall into those categories. We do look at it and say there are absolutely things that we can do. We've been at the forefront of really what's a global effort, you know, championed by Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister mm -hmm. of New Zealand. You know, she you know, advanced, we advanced with her a few years ago, the Christchurch call. So when these incidents happen, we at least activate 
a response to make sure that they're not spreading across the internet and inspiring others. Is that enough? I think that's the question you're asking me. It's a question we ask ourselves. I'm sure it's a question we'll continue to ask ourselves. That's also a way of saying, I don't have an answer today. Is it a business decision? Is it a a moral decision that the stance that you take here? Because you raised a great point about you raised a great point earlier, actually, about protecting your people. If, if you had people that said, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm working for, for Microsoft in a state and I don't feel safe, would you go, OK, that's fine. We'll allow you to shift simply because of the, the level of violence for whatever reason, for example. Is that something that you would think about, even if you, as you said, you work out what your stance is for, for whatever reason? There are some issues where it's easier to do that than others. Yeah. I mean, you know, for example, you know, we've been quick to say, even in recent weeks, that if we have an employee who lives in the state of the United States, that it turns out in the wake of a Supreme Court decision is not able to get okay. an abortion, our health benefits will ama- enable that person to travel. But that's not the same thing as dealing with the fabric of their community. And, you know, it is a concern. We hear about it from our employees I think everyone wants to live in a safer country, a safer community, a safer world. Um, yeah, I don't know that it's there's a vacuum of leadership in the United States. I think there's a stalemate of views around guns, and that makes it very hard. I, I would argue that the majority of American citizens who vote for those politicians want more control. This is true, perhaps. There is a democratic process that is in place. And then you have this question. I think if you're a business and you speak out on everything, you're not likely to be effective. Mm -hmm. If you speak out on too little, you may find that there are days when you regret your silence. (laughs) And that's the challenge that we struggle with. Everybody does. Can I extract a promise that you're talking about it? We are always talking about the hard issues of the day. Absolutely. The terrible events in Texas and how to respond just one of the tragedies and crises weighing on the world today. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz delivered the closing address at Davos earlier today and he chose to focus unsurprisingly on Russia's aggression in Ukraine, saying it's a dire threat to the post-World War II global order. Listen to this. The world is indeed at a turning point. And it is not only the statehood of Ukraine that is at stake. It is the system of international cooperation that was designed in the aftermath of two devastating world wars to give effect to the vow of never again that is at stake. A system that subjects power to the law, that bans the use of force as an instrument of politics, and that has, in the past decades, guaranteed us freedom, security and prosperity. Our goal is therefore crystal clear. We cannot allow Putin to win his war, and I firmly believe that he will not win it. Schultz, promising that Germany will completely phase out imports of Russian oil by the end of the year, And he says his country is working to, quote, flat out end its reliance on Russian gas. Richard Crest joins us now. Richard, for me, this Davos was about choices, 
and consequences. Choices in the short term having massive long-term consequences. The economy minister of Germany said to me, look, we went to the Americans and we said, look, we want to phase out oil. And they said, we're going to phase out oil, but you can't phase out oil and gas yet because the world can't cope with the ramp up in prices beyond today in the short term. Choices, consequences. Right, but at the end of the day, what's the end? What, what, what's the option? Because, yes, people are starting to whisper here, you know, what sue for peace? What's the answer? What would Russia take? What would Ukraine accept? Nothing what, right now. Well, at the moment, right now, yes. But the real politic of it, you know, would they accept territory? And what does total victory for Zelensky look like anyway? Does it include the take the getting back of Crimea taken in 2014? Now, I mean, this is a terrible conversation that we're having, but it's a realistic conversation because you have to pick your war. I sat on uh, a panel. 831 million people going hungry tonight. We have a war in Ukraine. We have conflicts being fought around the world and that's creating a food shortage. This is exacerbating it. Yes. At what point does every nation around the world, when their people are turning around to them and saying, I can't afford to feed my home. I cannot afford to feed my family. We have to stop the war. When do we get there? 1938, 1939, 1950s, 1960s. At what point? Look, I'm not suggesting we have to keep prosecuting this war to the end, but the, the line again and again, the price of a dictator only ever gets higher. That's what they keep saying. Viktor Orban in Hungary, who continually is moving, trying to move the European Union away from this hard aligned position. And Turkey on NATO, we can throw in that one as well. That's slightly different, but yes, yes. No, but it's players that are involved in this yes. that are trying to extract yes. profit or benefit so from a broader yourself, crisis. So ask yourself this simple question. Simple question. I asked the questions here, but I'll allow it. It was a rhetorical question. Okay, fine. Would you accept the loss of the Donbass and Luhansk region to Russia as the price of peace? Who are you asking me? I'm as? asking it in an esoteric sense. I don't think we can ask that question. And you know what? And, and we're making this very much about and Europe. And we should bring in the fact that there's a lack of Chinese here. And they're a massive player in this as well. The Chinese and have a, chosen to disengage. Wait a second. Well, they're on the fence for now. But they also face a lot of these challenges. And remember, they're shut down right now. And actually, that's another point. Yes. Right now, they're not sucking up all the food resources, for a great example, that they will when they start to reopen. And that will exacerbate this crisis. But this is a... Right now, spending is crucial us from recession at this moment what happens when recession kicks in and the economic pressures that countries are already facing come in at the back end of this year and suddenly everyone's looking at everybody else and going somehow we have to reach a deal here i agree with you but you know for me for the first time since the second world war and i agree with the imf chief on this the ethics the morals, the economics of policy choices for policymakers has never been more poignant and for business as always, they have to carry on regardless. No, I don't agree. I don't agree. I Shocking. Think that, I think that the sea, I think that we are, because as you've interviewed the same people or different people, and, and business leaders tell us this is the most difficult time that we've ever faced because of the confluence of global crises. I completely which are, which disagree. Are, which are in danger of overwhelming us. I think they still think COVID was a bigger deal. I don't think, oh, no. I don't think broader business understand that how no, poignant this moment is. Geopolitically, have maybe. You been, have you been in the sun? Econo- 
very much so. No, no, no. This, there, is a, there is a reality here about business that is absolutely scared witless over the longer term implications of this war lasting because as China reopens, so oil prices go back up again as their consumption gets added to global demand. That. And as that goes on, that trickles around the rest of the world and food inflation in the developed economies becomes a crisis and food It's insecure. already a crisis. It's been a crisis for years. How many times have I been told to shut up and move on? I don't know. You, you're, you're, Three times. <laughs> I prefer not to have anything in my ear. It makes it much easier. I you just, know. Just keep sail going. on blithely. Richard? By the way, snow or spring? Ooh. Answer tonight on Crest Means Business. Snow. Oh, no, come on. <laughs> you're just giving it away. I only said that because I knew you'd argue. Big hug. Richard, go away. I've got to move on. Richard Crest, sir, thank you. Okay. Tough. Choices and consequences. Straight ahead, the IMF's warning on global growth looming large this year's Davos. My interview with the IMF's managing director and her thoughts on the risk of recession and what her message is to President Putin next. Welcome back. As Richard and I were just discussing, fears that the war in Ukraine will continue to weigh on global growth have dominated the discussions here at Davos this week. IMF Chief Kristalina Georgieva set the tone when she said the global economy faces its biggest test since World War II. Yet for all the uncertainty, the managing director does not yet see an imminent threat of recession. Just take a listen. Well, let me first say that we are in a, a space that we have never been before, a crisis upon a crisis within two years. Mm -hmm. Just as we were recovering from the COVID-induced economic crisis, we were hit by a war in Europe, sanctions and their consequences. So look at what we have done. From October until now, twice downgraded our projections for global growth. And when we look into the last downgrade and what happened since, uh, I wouldn't put it out of question that there may be a further downgrade. Why? Because of tightening of financial conditions, because of dollar appreciation, it hits many countries uh, a lot, and because of the slowdown in China that is affecting uh, supply chains uh, uh, quite dramatically. What we are mostly concerned is, are we now stepping into a period of time of economic fragmentation? Mm. Are we going to see the consequences of this period to be long-lasting with trading blocks forming, possibly choice of reserve currencies that is more diversified? And would that mean that, yeah, the crisis is not so dramatic, I agree, from 3.6, which is our projection, down to minus territory, a long way to go. Very unlikely we would have a global recession. There would be recession perhaps in a... In a handful of countries, mm. but are we going to be poorer in the future as a result of the geoeconomics of today? I mean, you're answering the question and you're posing it at the same time, and we're seeing that economic fragmentation already, the broken supply chains, the reshoring, mm. but also, to your point, the geopolitical mm. fragmentation too. Does it become increasingly impossible to, to work together on all the big issues, food security, the climate crisis, we're all poorer for that too. Mm. And I, I still don't think we understand connecting the dots, the biggest mm. consequences of that. We ought 
to not go the way of fragmentation because mm. none of the big challenges we face, climate change, dealing with debt levels in low-income countries, mm. preventing a food crisis, which is already, by the way, happening, from exploding to a point that tens of millions of people mm. are severely affected. We need to work together for that. And what we are arguing is that we can apply economic logic out of these two shocks, which is you cannot only define economic efficiency on the basis of cost. You have to factor in security of supply. Mm. But don't take it from there to fragmentation and blocks, because if we go that far, the consequences would be bad for um, poor people in poor countries, but also for all of us, mm. because uh, our standard of living will be affected. Can we talk about Europe specifically? Because we can mm. see their battling with unity over sanctions, the consequences of detaching themselves from their reliance on, on Russian energy in particular. Is that, at least as far as the West is concerned, perhaps the most vulnerable to recession risk? Well, uh, let's look at uh, who is most impacted. Um, those that have not quite yet recovered from the previous uh, crisis. Mm. And fortunately, Europe is not in this category, but also those that are most impacted from the war, from Russia's aggression towards uh, Ukraine and its consequences. Europe falls in this category through the transmission line of high energy uh, prices, high food prices. They are fueling inflation in Europe. And that means that Europe has to tighten maybe not as much as the United States, unlikely as much as the United States, but still tighten financial conditions. What does it mean? It is a setback for the recovery mm. because uh, that would mean that uh, uh, investment based on borrowing uh, is going to be affected. Servicing prior debt uh, might be affected, although in some cases uh, they may be long-term borrow borrowing on in low interest rates environment. So there may be some windfalls for some, uh, for some companies. But overall, Europe is experiencing this. On top of it, there are two shocks that are very much Euro-specific. One, refugees. Mm. And the second one is the psychological shock of yet another war on European territory. And uh, as a European, I can say that is truly very uh, dramatic uh, for the people in Europe. We had world wars, but the main territory where the action was, was Europe. And the wounds from this, we remember. We'll talk about that in a second. Are you surprised, actually, in light of what you say, that, that consumption, spending has held up so well in light of what's a, an increasing cost of living crisis and your point about the, the confidence knock of mm. what we're seeing? Mm. Well, you know, we are not that surprised because remember when we were in lockdowns, we would buy <laughs> manufacturing goods, but services would suffer. Mm. Now that... As you know, thank you for those who came with vaccines. Now that we do not have these restrictions, what do we do? We get travel, out there. we get out <laughs> there, we go to the movies. And so uh, 
very we expected to see that uh, boom and we're we, still we, in we, it we are we are in it mm. uh, but if you look at the uh, data i mean we cut our projections for european growth by uh, for advanced europe by 1.1 percent for emerging europe by 1.5 percent mm. uh, so there is there is a bit more heaviness of the impact of the war uh, here uh, i hope it is not going to translate into loss of confidence, uh, but uh, when we look at uh, the potential risks, what is the biggest risk? Biggest risk is what may happen, either tightening up of, of sanctions uh, that would boost a price of uh, energy in Europe even further, or Europe deciding to be a disruptance of economic recovery, you know, if they stop gas uh, to uh, more countries uh, uh, that would be, especially if they stop uh, gas to Germany, mm. that can be quite uh, devastating. Just to, to let you know that uh, two countries already uh, lost their gas from Russia, Bulgaria, my own country, and Poland. Final question, because I know it's personal for you too. You have family in Ukraine. If you could directly appeal to, to Vladimir Putin, what would you say to him at this point? If it's even just about the food situation, never mind the broader war what w what would you say stop the war mm. pull out allow peace to return for the sake of everyone everywhere but especially for the sake of people who find themselves as if they are in a second world war movie except it is their reality with bombs falling and lives being lost. Coming up after the break, emergency talks in China on regalvanizing the economy post-COVID. A live report from Beijing coming up next. Stay with us. Welcome back. A call to action from leaders of the world's second largest economy. Amid stringent COVID lockdowns, more than 100,000 officials from various levels of government attended a virtual emergency meeting and heard calls for fresh efforts to stabilize the economy. At least 21 cities in China are still under full or partial lockdown, impacting 140 million people. Selena Wang joins us now. Selena, great to have you with us. This goes back to my point at the top of the show, choices and consequences, and there are no easy choices here, particularly if they're going to continue with zero COVID policy. What have they come up with to support growth in the meantime? Well, Julia, I mean, despite the crushing social and economic costs that we've been talking about nearly every day, no sign of letting up. Xi Jinping only doubling down on these punishing zero COVID policies. Authorities in more recent weeks, they've rolled out and veiled some of these support measures that include some tax refunds, increasing support for these small businesses, extending more loans to small and medium sized business. But by and large, analysts say that this is not nearly enough to offset the economic damage. And what we heard from the premier today. This was the grimmest warning yet that we've heard about the state of China's COVID hit economy. There was an emergency cabinet meeting of a hundred thousand 
100,000 officials across China in attendance over teleconference. And China's Premier Li Keqiang said that the economic impact of COVID this March and April is even worse than in 2020 during the initial COVID-19 outbreak in China. That's when China's economy came to a near standstill. Not mincing his words here, this just shows how big of an impact it is and leadership is realizing that. In fact, we have seen this absolutely shocking drops in economic activity with sharp shrinks in factory output, in consumer activity, consumer retail sales because of these zero COVID lockdowns. Still more than 100 million people across China under some form of lockdown. And in recent weeks, we have heard China's Premier Li Keqiang put out these starker warnings just a few weeks ago, calling the economic situation, quote, complex and grave. And of a special concern is Beijing is these rough unemployment numbers. The rate is now at the highest level since 2020. And of course, if you see mass unemployment in China, that is a risk factor to the Chinese Communist Party. And we are at a very sensitive moment now. We're just months away from the party Congress in the fall. This is when Xi Jinping is expected to step into an unprecedented third term. But again, those support measures, not nearly enough. And when we see China, the world's second largest economy, the world's factory, when it suffers, the whole world does. China's lockdowns having knock-on effects, worsening global supply chain, increasing inflationary Mm. pressures, and of course, dragging down global growth. Julia. Selena Wang, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. I'm still trying to get over the idea of 100,000 people on, a, on an internet call trying to come up with this. Imagine the internet capacity for that. Never mind anything else. Only in China. Big challenges. Selena Wang, thank you. Now, while Chinese officials are trying to support economic growth, as we discussed, it is coming at huge consequences for the environment, too. Two years ago, China promised to be carbon neutral by 2060, but it's now using and producing more coal as other costs of energy soar in a bid to solve a power crisis, which triggered blackouts for millions and forced factories to cut production. China mined a record amount of fossil fuel last year, undermining its plan to curb emissions. At least in the short term, China's presence in Davos has been limited as COVID concerns restrict travel. The highest ranking official here is the climate change special envoy, who was on stage with his US counterpart, John Kerry. And I spoke to the former Secretary of State on a rainy Tuesday after that panel. China is moving. China has agreed to put out this year a ambitious national action plan on methane. China is already moving to try to switch and move away from some of its coal, reduce the intensity. They've made some steps. I was very candid today and I said, I think we need to get more, not just from China, but more in our country. Of course. But what was the response when you said more? He understands, but he wants to sit and work through how we're going to do this. How do we both do it? As he, you know, he said, actions speak louder than words. And what we need to do is take the actions and begin to move in the right direction. Did he say get your own house in order first before you talk to us? No, we have not. We've had a lot of conversations. Our house is moving very aggressively on this issue. We have huge 75 percent of the new electricity that has come online in the United States in the last few years has all come from green. It's, it's, it's renewables that have produced it. So uh, we're taking huge actions. You can ask uh, plenty of, we have 150 uh, CEOs who've joined 
efforts uh, sustainably to, to in the Sustainable Markets Initiative. So I think extraordinarily exciting things are happening, even as it is difficult. I mean, but, I, but I think, you know, it promises that we can get there if we make the right decisions. I just think of the backdrop of, of you two on the, the panel, and we've got President Biden, of course, on his Asia trip, and talking to the Quad Nations, the sort of veiled message in that statement was, you know, just be careful what you're eyeing, China, uh, I think. Is it credible that the United States and, the, and, and China can, can work on this issue? Can, can the need to tackle climate change, and does the need to tackle climate change, transcend what is bitter, I think, geopolitical challenges at this moment between the two nations? Obviously, there are differences in view Huge on ones. a number. There are differences, yes. But President Xi and President Biden have both said this is not a bilateral issue. This is a multilateral, universal and existential issue. And it does no country any good it doesn't do the world any good to say, I'm not going to work with them or I'm not going to work with them. We have to work together for the simple reason that is the only way we win this battle. And China is as ready to understand that, I hope, as anybody else in the world. Thus far, we've been working together. And Lee, you know, Xia Zhenhua and I have known each other 25 years or more. We've worked together effectively. We've been able to make things happen. And we're going to continue to fight to do that. Part of the conversation here is a, a sort of new world order, a reframing of that world order. And it involves a sort of China and a, a Russia that looks differently and, and challenges the West, I think. Yeah. And we know it's about politics, and but it's also about other things. What does that reshaping of the world order ultimately mean for the planet, given everything that you just said? Well, I don't think it is a reshaping at this point. It may be something of a challenge in some places, but the vast, vast majority of nations on this planet believe in rule of law, want the United Nations Security Council to work. They want human rights and universal rights to be protected. And the fact is that that's what we're standing up for. That's what President Biden is standing up for. And we're going to continue to do that. So I, I think that it's not a, I don't think, you know, NATO has come together. Europe has come together with the United States, with all these other countries. People do not want to go back to the last century when nations would by use of force, change international boundaries and, and kill people, children, women in cold blood. That has to stop. And that is what uh, is a difference here. But it's a difference worth fighting for. Do they hold together all the nations that you you just mentioned in light of food crisis, cost of living crisis? It's going to accentuate fractures, challenges between nations. Yeah, but that's part of governing and that's part of life. It is. OK, <laughs> yeah, things aren't necessarily easy. Governing is hard. Life can be hard. But the fact is that, uh, you know, I believe that uh, we're trying to move in the right direction. I think we can move in that direction. I think I've described it. The world of a new clean economy will create millions of jobs up and down the ladder. You have you have plumbers and electricians and, and you'll have uh you know, construction workers and heavy equipment operators and architects and designers and engineers and everyone else involved in this transition. And it will build a cleaner, better world, safer world, healthier world. No question about that. I mean, we lose 15 million people a year or die because of air quality. What is that from? That's from greenhouse gas emissions. Right. That's what the pollution is. So if we deal with that pollution, 
just as we did years ago with the Clean Air Act, we will begin to make the difference we need to do. And we're finally collecting the dots on food security and climate change and the, the sort of interconnection between them. Yeah, but nobody, Final said, question. nobody said we can't do things simultaneously. Okay? <laughs> if only we could do it better. But yes. Yeah. Final question. Better. Can you promise me a comprehensive climate bill in this administration? Please. I wish I had the power to create that promise, but I have confidence that members of Congress are still fixated on it. They're serious about it. People want to get something. Can they come together? That's up to them. But um, I, I, I still believe there's a chance of getting something. Planet before politics, please. Well said. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Great to chat Thank to you. you. Thank you. Thank you again to the U.S. climate envoy, John Kerry, particularly amid Tuesday's torrential rain and, of course, before the tragedy that took place later in the week in Texas. Now, listen to this in light of that conversation. Secretary of State Antony Blinken expected to outline the contours of the Biden administration's approach to China in a speech next hour. A senior administration official said there are three pillars to the approach to invest, to align and to compete. The official said Blinken will make it clear that the U.S. is not looking to sever China's economy from the U.S. economy or the global economy. That's a shift in my mind, an important point in time. That's to come. As Europe desperately seeks to fill the hole left by Russian energy, Africa's largest oil producer, Nigeria, is struggling to keep up with production. What's the game plan? The country's finance minister joins us next. Stay with us. Welcome back. Nigeria's economy, fast growing in recent years, now seeing progress challenged by the inflationary fallout from the war in Ukraine. Nigeria may be Africa's biggest oil producer and therefore benefiting from higher oil prices, but it's also a large importer of refined petroleum products, which complicates the picture. Pre-war Nigeria also relied heavily on Russia for its wheat and fertilizer imports, those supplies, of course, being disrupted amid sanctions enacted on Russia by the West. Lots of challenges, lots of opportunity. I'm pleased to say we're joined by Zainab Arbenz. She's Nigeria's Minister of Finance, Budget and National Planning. Minister, fantastic to have you on the show. Much to discuss, but let's talk about energy. As I mentioned, it's sort of good on the one hand, or it could be if you can monopolize on it. it it's tough on the other. What's the net effect on the budget and, and how do you turn that around? Well, the net effect for us is that we're not uh, realizing the yeah. increased revenues that we had hoped because we have to use um, the revenues to buy refined petroleum products. Mm. And as the prices go up in the international market, we are paying more for mm. PMS. Uh, it also meant that uh, our fiscal deficit has expanded uh, because we had earlier on um, decided that we'll stop the removal of foil subsidy. But the Ukraine war compounded that um, uh, situation for us. But we, we were able to manage physically uh, by being able to plan on how to address the deficit because it is for a short to medium term for us. Um, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, yeah. yes. Um, there is one opportunity, perhaps, and I think the European Union's talking about it, Russia's also talking about it, and that's untapped LNG resources. Would you consider, and obviously that there's technical challenges, there's moral challenges perhaps too for, for Nigeria of supplying Russia, of supplying the EU. How would you consider the options here? So already uh, the National Oil Company has been approached by some 
potential buyers of the Nigerian uh, including liquid Russia? natural gas. Um, including Russia? Not yet, including Russia. But uh, so the, the NLNG company is already expanding. It has been expanding its operations. There is a train seven that is being worked on. It means there is an opportunity to, exp uh, to export more gas mm. uh, from the country. And it means more revenues c coming into the country. There's also an opportunity for us to increase the consumption of gas domestically, right. uh, helping us to uh, exit the use of uh, diesel and, and uh, cleaner energy uh, for us. How long does that take? Um, there's a gas pipeline under construction. It should be completed in the next 12 months. Uh, it's from the gas source in the south-south to the middle of the country. It means there will be gas available to industries near where they're operating. Right now, gas is trucked, I guess, uh, across the country, which is expensive and inefficient. So with the gas pipeline that has been built, it will bring gas nearer to, to industries. I want to, it's a very important issue, but there's many of them. And, and I'm very keen to talk about other parts of your economy, too, because they're hugely exciting parts of the economy as you, as you continue to diversify. But... Before that, food prices, inflation in general, but, but food prices in particular, and important for your farmers too, fertilizer, and, and your imports of fertilizer challenged by broader tensions with Russia over what can be traded and, and what can't. What are the alternatives, particularly as prices rise to fertilizer? I mean, you have to import less anyway, simply due to cost. It has knock-on consequences for, for what you can produce. Well, one of the uh, implications of the Ukraine-Russia war is the high prices of fertilizer. Right. But we produce fertilizer in Nigeria. We've started exporting fertilizer. But we are facing the high cost of the inputs for the production of the fertilizer, which has been coming from Morocco mm -hmm. and from Russia. We've had to find other sources for potash, and uh, but at a much higher cost. And it means that fertilizer prices are going up as a result. So government is looking at and working with the industry on how to provide cushion to the industry and eventually to be passed on to, to the farmers. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's so many challenges that you're dealing with. To, to go back to my earlier point about some of the areas in your economy that do continue to accelerate, healthcare, digitization, technology, there's, I could name many of them that are financial hugely, services, financials, insurance, great ones, yes, thank you. Yes. Um, how do you continue to support, foster innovation when you have so many other demands, both on your time and on your financial resources as well. So the, the, the fact is we actually have a very resilient economy. Mm. The Nigerian economy is truly diversified. Oil and gas sector contributes only 7% to the Nigerian uh, GDP. And mm -hmm. we have a private sector that is vibrant. And they continue to invest. So all government is doing is providing the policies and the enabling environment and support so that the private sector uh, drive their businesses. And we are seeing the results in increased uh, contribution of the ICT sector uh, and, and services as well as the financial industry to the economy. So very quickly, the managers, you can, you can manage this. The messages, you can manage this. We are doing well so far. Mm. Uh, growth projections have consistently outperformed the World Bank and the IMF and we're keeping the pace. Ladies in control, and you look beautiful by the way. It's lovely thank to you. see uh, so color. You. Thank you. We're bringing thank some you. color to Davos, Minister. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very Sina much for having Ahmed. me. Thank you. Nigeria's finance minister there. Okay, still to come Volkswagen has already sold out of electric cars in several key markets. I spoke to its CEO about the company's next big target. Stay with us.
Welcome back. Volkswagen Group continuing to rev up its electric ambitions. The German car giant launching at least one new electric car every year up until 2026. And it has intentions to grow in the United States, selling its cars at 1,000 independent dealerships across the country. Volkswagen's U.S. footprint has grown and so has the competition. I spoke to Herbert D, CEO of Volkswagen, about the company's expansion and tackling Tesla. Listen in. You've said that you can take Tesla by 2025, in 2025, yeah, in terms did, of global did sales. I, did I say that? Yes, I said, you did I, say that. I said we will intend it. Yeah? We, will, we will fight for market leadership. No, 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 no. <laughs> we had this plan uh, when we started our EV initiative, so probably five years back or so. We said, no, we are a volume manufacturer. Mm. We want to be, we have a high market share. No? We have 20% in Europe, 20% in China. We are growing in the States from a, from a, <laughs> yes. from a, from a low basis, but it's we are growing. More ambition, we are we're back there. Again. We are committed. Yes, uh, we are also committed to grow with EVs. To yeah. we will revive an American brand. So I'm really excited about uh, America and the, uh, the reception of our product in America is really good. So we are um, motivated, uh, and we are building factories. Now we have now two entirely converted plants in China. Uh, we have now uh, we starting production Emden, which is our second location yeah. in Germany. Hanover will follow Swift with the new EV bus. So we're building up the capacities. If we make the accounts, it can be very tight coming 25. <laughs> but about five years ago, we said we want to become market leader in 25. This is the target we have. Uh, uh, Tesla is performing better than we thought. Yeah. <laughs> it's a moving target. <laughs> um, do you have to steal their customers? Or no, not at all. Not at all. I think all customers uh, sooner or later will change into EVs. Mm. We are gaining a lot new customers. Now many new customers which haven't bought a Porsche or an Audi or Volkswagen are buying because of its electric. So it will, it will be a new mixture. Uh, currently, um, we have high waiting times for our EVs, I and know. and I, I boots a posted Tesla probably as well. You so. can't get one this year, isn't that true? <laughs> You can't get one now. Yeah, uh, 2023. In, 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 in some markets, we are already selling into 23. Yeah. So the message is, Elon, we're coming to get you. We're coming. We are busy. And we'll have more from my conversation with Herbert Dees in tomorrow's show. For now, though, that's it from the World Economic Forum here in Davos. I make that three costume changes, three dramatic weather changes today, so I do bring it all for you. If you missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. As always, we'll see you very soon. And Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. So stay with CNN. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.